The International IVF Initiative is a worldwide non-profit education project for the assisted reproductive technologies community, sharing scientific and practical knowledge for embryologists, reproductive scientists and anyone working in the ART community. Each episode will share an insight into the world of IVF, along with profiles of legends within the world of ART, latest news and wisdom from our community. Here's your host, Giles Palmer. Welcome again to an i3 podcast. You'll hear us talk after the webinar, which had the quite strange topic, really, of behind bars, assisted reproduction and rights. It was all about prisoners and were they able to have assisted reproduction. There were some many fascinating things which came out of this webinar, but also we spoke about it in the meeting we had afterwards. Should a prisoner be refused the right to fertility treatment? or even for fertility preservation. There's so many techniques now we have, whether it's uh, freezing sperm or eggs or surrogacy or IVF, of course. There are ways that you could, in fact, bypass perhaps time in prison to start a family either before or after you've served your sentence. So it was a very timely webinar because there's a lot that's happening in the world at the moment. In several countries, including the US, there's some restrictive IVF laws going on. We had a panel which was made up of lawyers and, of course, of embryologists, and we looked at case studies from around the prisons, you know, what was allowed or what was even being done under the noses of some prison guards sometimes, but actually looked at the rights of both the prisoners but also of the welfare of the child. Uh, This was an incredibly interesting webinar and just shows you the many facets which assisted reproduction can take. Hello. Hey, how are you? Good. Wow, that was oh, interesting. It was. A lot of stuff that I didn't know. Yeah. That was amazing, guys. That was amazing. Yeah. You just took it to, you know, different places. I, you know, I wouldn't have thought. Fantastic. Really, really good. Thank you all all very much. I mean, how do you think it went? I thought, um, Lyndon, your start off was just fantastic. I love the smuggling sperm and the sex in the prison. And you know, it reminded me of an adoption case I had where um, the uh, the the birth mom got pregnant and she insisted that the birth father was uh, incarcerated. And we're like, how did that happen? And it turned out, you know, she had a, a she got to visit him and they snuck off into the, the bathroom or I know it was actually like a janitor's closet, like off of the visiting room. <laughs> 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 so it was a quickie. <laughs> I've, ha- I've had a janitor's closet case. <laughs> a guard who uh, ended up being prosecuted for uh, for his actions as it related to that inmate. Well, there's a very famous, there's a very famous embryologist. I won't mention his name, but when I was talking about this, he said that he once had a, um, a guy brought to him in handcuffs with, with like a policeman or with a jailer or whatever they call to the clinic. And he was there to give a sperm sample. And the guy said, well, you know, he's got to go into the room. You know, he said, well, I bought the long chain. That's exactly what happened. But- <laughs> you get at least a magazine. <laughs> well, possibly, you know, but like you've got this chain dangling around. I don't know if you could hear anything. Anyway, getting a little bit serious, more and more people, are, you know, are freezing their oversights, aren't they? I think in the States, especially, you know, there's drive to do with the younger. Well, you know, there are going to be people that are incarcerated and they're going to have frozen eggs outside, aren't they? You know, so it's going to be a possibility soon, isn't it? And then what happens with consent? You know, if they consent, can they have a surrogate? It's going to be a minefield, as someone said. I I don't think there's much room for government intrusion in a circumstance where somebody's already got their eggs or embryo preserved, and then they have someone who is not incarcerated serving as the gestational carrier. In that circumstance, I think that that could occur without any need for any government uh, consent there. Um, I, I think the harder case would be 
you've got an embryo, you want to transfer it into you yourself, and you yourself are an incarcerated female. Yeah, that that's the much harder case there. But you know, a man who's got frozen sperm on the outside and his wife wants to, you know, use them. Um, I don't think that I, if the government were to try to stop that, I think that would be a, a, a good case that you could bring because there's just no basis to stop it. The, the clinic just needs to get consent from him. So as long as they can get consent from him, then you know, then the clinic should be willing to use it. Yeah, and I saw that there was a question in the chat about taking consent and whether it was possible to um, to do that with with someone who was incarcerated. I, I don't know what the prompt for that was because I couldn't see a practical problem with that, providing uh, there was a means of having a, a proper dialogue and consultation, whether that was in person or, um, or over Zoom or Teams or something. Um, so I, I, maybe they were concerned about something else, but I couldn't see an obstacle to, to taking consent in practice. Do you think we'll see men starting to freeze sperm more and then have vasectomies because of the Roe situation? Or they're not going to think that far ahead? Because if I was a guy, I think if I wanted to one day have kids, but make sure I wasn't going to have kids now, I think I'd freeze sperm, have a vasectomy, and then know that couldn't, yeah, you couldn't get someone accidentally pregnant. I, I guess. You couldn't get I I have frozen sperm for for younger men that didn't have kids that just wanted to be damn sure that they didn't parent wow. mistakenly. That's a strange way to look at it, isn't it? To just sort of like deny your fertility by having a vasectomy, but yeah. ensuring that you have, isn't it? You know, you know, it takes insight for someone to store that. And, and of course, you know, with these kits that are now available, again, it's more, pretty more, easy now. Yeah, and you know, more and more young men are freezing, um, mm -hmm. and, and it's a lifestyle thing. I think it'd be difficult to get one of those kits to an individual who is incarcerated through the normal, you know, jail mail, yeah. and then get it, and then get it back out. Um, you know, as a as a practical matter. Um, yeah, I, but if you could smuggle a cup. If you could smuggle a cup of semen out that was produced within the last hour, they could put it with the, you know, the media and ship it off. That's jail. Well, by not they let people have any sort of physical contact with anybody yeah. right now. Um, I would yeah. assume it would violate my rules of professional conduct as a lawyer. I'm allowed yeah. to have in-person visitation with my clients, although they've clamped down on that with COVID in terms of attorney visits. But I would assume that knowingly violating, knowingly smuggling something out of a jail. You can't, you can't, you wouldn't be smuggling cups of semen out. You wouldn't be, you wouldn't be a lawyer much longer. I have a question for you, Don. First of all, I, I obviously didn't know about those kits and the ability to prolong the life of sperm, but new. I'm also concerned about the infection rate or risk that might occur with a guy collecting his own sample within a prison environment where there may have been all kinds of, you know, things going on. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the considerations with the, yeah, like sex between inmates or, sexual you know, violence. that sexual violence. Um, and so that one of the things about the FDA regs is I, I know that there are some different provisions when people are sexually intimate partners and is someone a sexually intimate partner when they've been away from each other for two years and one of them is in an environment that we should all consider a, a high risk environment. So it's interesting because there are a lot of scenarios out there that happen outside the clinics. So years and years ago, when I first started as a lab director, 25 plus years ago, 
I was doing a patient workshop and there was a, a woman there that had basically turkey basted herself for a heterosexual couple and been an outright surrogate. So mm -hmm. like genetic mom, a surrogate gave the first yeah. baby up and she was going to do it again. And I was like, oh my gosh, like you don't have any sexually transmitted disease testing. I mean, this stuff is going on. People are selling their eggs on Facebook to other people. I mean, it's what happens within the clinic, at least we can control, but there's a lot of stuff that's happening outside the clinic. And so. yeah, I was aware of that in my practice too. Yeah, especially I have, turkey, I have a, especially I the have, turkey baster scenarios and the, yeah. and the people that would get impregnated by a friend and, you know, not yeah. even bother with the turkey baster, but yeah. Yeah. And that's going on too. Yeah. But somehow I think that in prison, if there's been sexual violence and so on, that the risk may be different. I mean, you name the possibility and it's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but now with art, you know, there's so many more scenarios, you know, which you could think about. That's the thing, you know, we spoke about the cancer treatment, okay, and and, and fertility preservation. Um, I mean, I just wonder if, if, if someone who's inside... Um, has the possibility to have a child even when they leave so let's say that you know the fertile years are taken away would that perhaps help with rehabilitation perhaps to think that you know this person hadn't you know wasted all that time i wonder i wonder if that's you know i was reflecting back on linden's about conjugal visits and the data that says that um that there's less reoffending when you're given conjugal visits, right? The data that's out there. And I think it's it really does come down to removing people's hope versus like providing them with some, and I mean, everything in life is that way. As the, as the parent of a teenage daughter, I see that she's got vision for her future, which is giving her all that purpose, right? If we all have vision for our future, then you've got hope and you've got a reason to live. If you take all of that away from somebody, then of course, if you take away all of their conjugal visits, you take away all of their potential for family, then what do they have to live for? Then those are the ones that are, are going to be reoffending more. So it seems natural to me. I don't think there's much data on it. I totally agree with you. It seems like that would lean toward re to rehabilitation, et cetera. I still struggle though with like um, a, a certain level of crime and a certain you know, like if you have a psychotic you know yeah. um you know killer that's on death row or has a life sentence or to me and, it, and it's hard to say where you draw the line i, can, I was looking at lyndon you know the the wellness assessment and, and taking it from the child side but I, I don't know that we can always look at it purely from the i mean I, I guess you could say you know if the person is psychotic and they've murdered five people you don't want them to have a child because or they're not going to be around to even raise a child but to me and maybe it's just the u.s way of viewing things i think there has to be more than just the assessment in terms of the child i think there has to be assessment in terms of the overall population and looking at and looking at what is genetic and do they have are they schizophrenic have they been convicted of some pretty violent crimes i think we have to be very careful about genetic assessments though too because you know i i mean i'm myopic are we going to start you know screening out people because they don't have you know i mean there's a, a million reasons why we could screen people out so i think we want to be really careful with you know. there are, there are plenty of people with uh, uh psychological uh maladies who uh go out to bars on friday nights and yeah. figure out a way to, uh, to, to handle that <laughs> absent uh any medical intervention or intervention from the state yep. 
Um, I, I think how that would factor in if you have an individual who is your less than ideal plaintiff in this circumstance is that if I'm trying to sue in order to get some discretionary treatment given for somebody and the judge is going to be entering the, the using their, his or her discretion in a balancing test of, okay, how much is the burden on the institution to provide this care? What's the harm to this individual to not receive the care? And, and what they're not going to say is, you know, when they're, when they're balancing those equities, if you've got that, you know, less than ideal plaintiff, a lot of times the, the equities get balanced the other way. Um, yeah. Mom, you got your hand up? Yeah, I'm probably not. I'm probably not the only person worrying about the welfare of a spouse on the outside because a lot of crimes are crimes of power, domestic violence type things, rape, um, assaulting other people. I got a kernel of, of insight about this kind of thing watching a Netflix movie recently. The man was a was a drug dealer. This is fiction, of course, but the man, the man was a drug dealer. There was a raid on the house. The, the wife had no idea he was a drug dealer. He and a couple of his buddies all get get shipped off to prison for fairly lengthy sentences. Actually, she wasn't the wife. She was the fiance. So after he's been gone for about 18 months, she starts dating and he starts sending some of his goon squad everywhere she goes. He he has basically um, surrogate stalkers watching her. And I think that insisting on impregnating your wife, it could be in a, an abusive family situation, could be a way of keeping her basically barefoot and pregnant, getting her out of circulation. And so I hope there would be a way in a screening process. Uh, and and as, as we know, I mean, victims of domestic violence will, will often say that they won't admit that they are at risk. They may not even admit it to themselves. That's a, something that I think Very good point. look at in a welfare I think assessment. That's a super good point. Yeah. Is she really, really, truly voluntarily consenting? And in the UK, with the welfare of the child, are both partners always there? Because again, if if they're in a relationship and they cannot speak their mind, perhaps you know that's a problem. Um, the clinic needs to be satisfied mm. to, to the extent it's able to be that it's um, fulfilled the assessment according to yeah. what the HFEA requires and according to what the law requires. And Respond goes very much to the assessment of, of the couple rather than the assessment of the welfare of the child. And there could be lots of reasons why you might not agree to treat a couple if you had concerns about the nature of their relationship. Not least because in that scenario that Ruth described, under UK law, you may not be able to obtain a valid consent. So if somebody's under duress, then that's not a voluntary consent even if it's informed it's not given voluntarily so it undermines the legality of that um so there, there are lots of ways in which clinics could uh quite lawfully uh decline or postpone treatment um my my concerns and i hope i didn't sound like an ultra liberal on the on the call are about the application of the, the test to the sort of hypothetical child um and i i think that puts a very difficult requirements at the the on the shoulders of Lyndon and nurses and doctors who are in, involved in meeting couples and having to take into account factors which are simply not really a part of clinical or laboratory practice. If you have a guy incarcerated for life and he's realistically not going to get out, maybe he's committed a series of murders or something like that. And he meets a lot of the criteria, but when you start looking at the, to, to allow him to go forward, but you start looking at the best interests of a child, 
he's not going to be able to develop and maintain any any sort of meaningful relationship with that child. So where does the, at least not the way incarceration works in the U.S., where is, where, how, how do you assess the best interests of the child when the only way they will ever see each other is through a glass partition and he will not be financially supportive or develop a, a productive, meaningful supportive parental relationship is one of the phrases that we use. Well, it's, it's an interesting question because the, the way that the UK law was originally drafted was slightly different to Lyndon's line. So it used to say you have to consider the welfare of a child, including the need of a child for a father, mm -hmm. um, which was used as a barrier by some clinics to treating both single women and same-sex couples. Mm -hmm. So in the early years of IVF, uh, a lot of clinics had very restrictive policies in terms of who they would treat. And it's fair to say, Lyndon's very slightly older than me, um, but I think it's fair to say he would remember times when there were clinics who basically refused treatment to people that they didn't like the look of. Uh, now, the HFEA have gone almost to the opposite extreme, where I think clinics would probably get into quite a bit of trouble if they were applying that test too restrictively. Um, so there is absolutely no legal barrier to treating single women, uh, to treating same-sex couples, or indeed to treating uh, a woman whose partner is in, in prison or the other way around, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, with surrogacy. So, and, and I mean personally, and this is my view, I don't see any difference between treating a, a woman whose husband is in prison to treating a woman whose husband has died. And that the need is to, to be satisfied that the child will be free of risk of harm. It may not be ideal by what is really quite a subjective standard. And it may be very difficult, but it doesn't mean that as a matter of law, certainly, that she should be refused treatment. Well, I've revealed my double standard, too, because I certainly represented happily many single women and some single men as well. So being single to me was not a barrier. I guess what's happening is that my opinion about this is influenced by, by my presumption that he's a bad actor and that having that kid grow up knowing that that was their father. One of you mentioned this in the context of a sperm donor, that it could be psychologically damaging to know that your donor was a was in prison for murder. I think likewise, it could be psychologically damaging to know that your father is a murderer and to have to, maybe they wouldn't be required to visit, but if they were going to visit, it would be in that very sad and limited environment. And anecdotally, they do say that uh, Ted Bundy's daughter is one of the loveliest, most welcoming, you know, not, nobody really knows her, her location or a new identity, but people who know her who are unwilling to obviously give away identifying, identifying information say that she's turned into a fabulous person. That's great. That just shoots that gender discrimination theory. Genetic, genetic discrimination and uh, making assumptions that somebody's going to have the same uh, mental health issues as a yeah. parent. Listen, guys, thank you all very much. I don't want to keep you much longer, or in fact, long at all, really. I just want to thank you all. That was a fantastic session. I would, I would challenge anyone that wants to take those questions and make an opinion piece out of it, because I think, you know, it, you know it's touched a nerve. It's, you know, it's been, it's been really fascinating. Thanks Thank all. you, guys, for Thank you. your team. Bye. 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 Thank you. Okay, Bye. thanks a lot. Don't forget to look at the show notes because the link to this very interesting webinar is there. And please, please, please rate and review us. We really want to hear from your feedback. So tell us your thoughts. 
and perhaps give us five stars. How about that? Be sure to visit ivfmeeting.com where you can watch our back catalogue of webinars. Plus, you can sign up for future ones, download our electronic membership card and find all our social media so we can stay in touch.